Hi, Mel. How's things? Good. You know, living the dream. Uh, not the homeowner's dream as you are, but... I bought a house. So yeah, sorry this Woo. one's sorry this one's going up a little bit late. I bought a house. Um, so does this mean if I'm ever homeless, I can come and like crash in your basement, your unfinished basement? It's going to be a finished basement, hopefully. But by not the, right now. By the summer, it will be a finished basement. Okay. Hopefully, maybe, well, probably, yeah. So yeah, I've been between work- now and summer. If I'm homeless, I'll hit you up. Deal. Yeah. So I'm I've been doing a bunch of stuff with that. So you know, where. We got some renovation projects, so it's it's been a rough week. Um, we actually closed on the day this was supposed to go live, so oops. Um, so I have I have another fun one this week. Um, oh, I, f- I like fun ones. I feel like we need some uplift- uplifting stories uh, right now because the Midwest is kind of getting hammered with snow and incredibly cold things. The the sad is is at an all time high currently. Um, and it's supposed to snow again tomorrow, which is just great. Um, yeah, we're going to get sleep and freezing rain. So. Oh, God. It's the snow cherry on top of the snow Sunday that is my snow life. Truth. Uh, I did buy a snow blower. What a homeowner thing to do. I know, isn't that? Um, so last week's or last the week before last, we talked about the uh, the gold, g- the gold found in them their yeah. hills, um, and it got me thinking because the the mystery was really about like these people found this gold, and it like it was worth a lot, and it got me thinking about fun heists and like Ocean's okay. Eleven kind of stuff. Yeah, um, <clears throat> so. Just as a reminder, the prevailing theory about this mysterious gold that found in California was that it was smuggled out by a um, by a clerk, uh, like in his pants or something. Like he just like smuggled it out. And his fake hunchback. Yeah, you know, it was like the early 1900s or late 1800s, and it was just like there was no security there, and he was like a guy that had a key to the vault, so he just like took it. Um, like, this guy wasn't a Danny Ocean or anything like that. He wasn't a George Clooney. So, that did get me thinking, though. What are some, like, super, like, oceanic Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts kind of heists that, like, are still out there and unsolved? Um, so, I found one. one. It isn't. I did find one. It. I think it's oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so, let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's dive in. Hey, guys. Just a quick announcement. Um, we are going to... Yeah. Switch up a little bit our schedule. So <clears throat> right now things are just really hectic for us and we're still very committed to this podcast. We love doing it. We love hearing from all of you, but it's just really hard for us to meet the exact deadline of Fridays right now. So we are committing to getting out an episode every two weeks. Yeah. So 26 we are a year. We're not committing to Friday. Right. 26 episodes a year. Sometimes it'll be Saturday. Sometimes it'll be the following Tuesday. Sometimes it'll be the Wednesday before. It's just going to be about every two weeks centered around that kind of Friday deadline that we have set for ourselves. Right. We're going to try our very, very best to get episodes out on Friday, but things are just very hectic for the both of us. So this is kind of our compromise for now. We're not settling for this this is not what we want to do forever right but uh, we'll let you know once we're back on a regular schedule um if you have any questions comments concerns like we've always said you can you know message us through social media 
or reach out via our comment form on our website. Um, we still want to get episodes out to you guys. So 100% committed to that. It's just, you know, deadlines are hard. Yeah, life is hard. So, okay, yeah. let's dive in. Uh, so I'm just going to start with some background and setting. The place. Hey. The Montreal Museum of Fine Arts in Canada. Ooh. Um, the museum itself. It, it, it's Montreal. Mont- I'm not going to do that. I can't okay. do that. Um, there's there's going to be, it is in Montreal, so there's going to be some French names coming up that hopefully you'll oh. be able to correct my pronunciation on. Um, this is my jam. The museum itself was founded in 1860 and established as the Art Association of Montreal. Um, over the following decades, past 1860, Montreal went through kind of the industrial boom that was part of, uh, you know, typical of large cities in North America at the time. And in 1913, through the donation of money and art from wealthy Canadian patrons, they were able to build their main building that is now known as their kind of central Mo- Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. Um, it it was can- yep. Yeah, it was actually built as Canada's first space explicitly dedicated to the exhibition of fine art, and is still one of the largest museums in in uh, in all of Canada. Um, the building itself is named after one of the families that helped to establish the museum. Names aren't really that important. Um, what is important <laughs> though is that the building is distinctly museum shaped. I just want to give you like a, a rough picture of this. It's a museum shaped okay. building, right? It's a large multi-story square, roughly the size of a small city block. The front is like Greco Roman with these nice big columns and like today- As you do when you're building an art museum. Right. And today you can still see hanging banners like, you know, showcasing their current exhibitions and all that good stuff. Like when Oh, you- so like the Field Museum in Chicago. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. It, yeah, it, like you look at pictures of this place, it looks a lot like the Field Museum in Chicago. Except, um, do not go through those doors with all the banners because 100% guaranteed they're locked. You got to go around to the side. Continue. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. But the point is, when you look at this place, you think, huh, that building looks like a museum. I wonder what their hours are, right? Um, so. Over the next several decades, uh, in the early 1900s, uh, the museum encountered some financial trouble because it was privatized. Um, And in the early 70s, um, late 60s, 1960s, they went from being a private institution to a semi-public nonprofit organization, um, which helped them secure a bunch of public funding and engage in some other fundraising activities. Sweet. Um, Okay. So the museum's on the boom, you know, it's it's 60s and 70s, kind of the, the artsy culture is, is really on the rise in North America. Um, there's actually some really interesting Canadian history around this time where Montreal was put Ooh. under martial law uh, due to terrorist attacks by a group of like Quebec secessionists. Oh, yeah. No, it's OK. So side note, everybody, there is a huge group of Quebecois people who want to make that territory that part of canada their own country and they're like hardcore about it um because they feel that they have a distinct culture you know many of the people are native french speakers if not bilingual in french and english and there's a whole lot of other things in there but this is like a huge deal in canada and ongoing today there are still people who are like very very serious about seceding from the country of canada i didn't wow okay so the next line I had was there's a lot more to it than that, 
but I'm not going to go into it. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. If you want an episode on the history of this, let us know. Otherwise, we're going to move on. Yeah, maybe we'll get into it. Um, But because of all of that that was happening, because there was some terrorist attacks in and around Montreal and in Quebec in general, um, a lot of the art-centric investment potential for the city... uh, kind of just went away tons of the wealthiest city citizens that were able to move away from the region did so um which would be kind of especially around that time your main art going crowds right your your museum okay. patrons are usually composed of of people what, like me yeah well i mean students and like upper middle class people um and especially uh, the, right and especially the people that can donate to museums oh yeah they love uh, those people yeah those people are are wealthy enough when a war starts or is threatening to start they're gonna move away right um, oh yeah for sure so so all of the money that was kind of centered around this this thing moved away dried up yeah (laughs) it it dried up a little bit right around the time that they decided to go public um which in the around 1971 1972 the museum started some renovation projects because of their newly secured public funding and they're like oh no (laughs) right so the the renovation projects ended up taking a lot longer than they thought they would because in 1971 72 you know everything kind of went pear-shaped in in montreal at least as far as like public funding goes um and also like remember that that was like a busy decade kind of globally i feel you know like there's a lot of shit going on in the united states there was a lot of shit going on in the rest of the world so it's easy to forget but there was a lot going on in the 70s there was so i mean things like the quebec secessionists might not have even been something that was publicized widely in the united states who knows um yeah i mean i'm sure there are a lot of people who've never heard of that before i never are united states citizens i never had until this so um yeah, I'm one Throwing of them. some knowledge on you, listeners. Right. Continue. So um, the setting is 1972. That's when the story is going to take place. But before I go into that, um, I want to quickly tell you about some less than mysterious kind of art thefts and heists and attempts that happened prior in the museum's history. Um, oh, in 1933, someone hid in the museum after it closed and managed to steal 14 paintings by sneaking them to an accomplice through the women's bathroom window uh, before okay, escaping so here's themselves. Okay, question, though. Yep. Did he do them one by one or all at once? Do you know what I'm saying? I think probably one by one or maybe f- wow. three at a time. I don't know. I mean, he yeah, just... Yeah, their security is not great, is it? I mean, it's 1933. He just hid in the museum after it closed, right? So... Right. Yeah, I don't really know what 30s his, or 30 security looks like. Um, <laughs> Fair. But the museum uh, later received a ransom note for $10,000. Uh, three months went by and without the ransom being paid before a local mm. English language newspaper received half of one of the paintings in the mail. <laughs> <gasps> oh my gosh, so it was just destroyed. Yep, so uh, it also came with a note saying that all of the other works would be destroyed if the museum didn't pay at least 25% of the ransom. Oh my goodness. Um, later that month, a, Paul, a man named Paul Thuin was arrested while attempting to rob a freight car near uh, at, or at a local train warehouse. During the robbery, he shot and killed a police officer, and during, <gasps> his, in, yep, and during his interrogation, he revealed that he was the one that robbed the museum and gave up the uh, location of the uh, remaining 13 and a half paintings. But, like, why? Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, was so, he getting a deal? 
he was hoping he would get a deal. Um, they were recovered he safely. Did uh, well, the paintings are recovered safely. Paul, uh, who was afraid of prison even after a deal, uh, committed suicide with strychnine <gasps> while he was oh. in police custody later that hmm. night. So, okay. Apparently, he stuck the strychnine in, in his shoe. I don't I would never think to do that. This is why I wouldn't make a good career criminal. I just don't know where he got the strychnine, because, like, did he just always have that on him and he was arrested with it in case he had to commit suicide? <laughs> he was always prepared. He was ultra prepared. Yeah, that's weird. Um, so in 1960, so that, that concludes that non-mysterious heist. <laughs> right, that wrapped up. That wrapped up real quick. Um, in 1960, a group of masked armed men attempted to steal several Van Gogh paintings that were at the museum during a special exhibition. They managed to steal nothing. So and British of you. Yes, Van Gogh. What's Dutch? Van Gogh. Um, they Someone managed. Who's Dutch is going to get really offended now. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Dutch. I'm sorry, Dutch people. I can't make the the gh sound with my mouth because I'm not Dutch. Um, so the the armed men who who tried to steal those paintings uh, managed to steal exactly nothing, and none of them were ever caught. So. Oh wow. Okay. Yep. So it's just like some story you tell when you've been drinking a lot and you're at like a cheap bar and you're like, hey man, guess what? I almost still you tried to do ghosts. this. And yeah. the person's like, okay, yeah, whatever. Right. I'm going to try to steal some goth go paintings. Oh. This is a good time. Exactly. Yeah, no, um, so <laughs> I got some Foley work going on here. Um,. So, like I said before, due to the funding that came from the public sector in the early 70s, um, the museum started to update some incredibly outdated show spaces and architecture. Things like increasing utilities for large crowds, things like wider hallways and larger rooms, more bathrooms that could accommodate crowds, which they didn't have before, um, disability accessibility, all that kind of stuff. Oh, so, see, that's great. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, is like by them making like wider hallways oh, yeah. and more viewing space, you know, was the idea for it to be more handicap accessible, which is a hundred percent amazing. Every building should be accessible to every person of any sort. So EDA compliant, or in this case, CDA compliant. I don't know. Um, but remember the, the original building was built in 1913. So it had a lot of really right. outdated, like small room doors on every room architecture. Um, you know, built to kind of keep the heat in, especially in Canada. So, um, right. um, so this kind of transitioned smoothly into our mystery on Labor Day weekend. Ooh, yep, excited. Yep. In September on Labor Day weekend, 1972 at around one thirty AM on September 4th, uh, one of the three on-site security guards was walking, uh, to the museum's kitchen to make himself a cup of tea. 1.30 in the morning. Do. Yep, as you do. You're an overnight security guard. As he turned a corner on the way to the kitchen, he encountered three men whose faces were covered in ski masks. Oh, that's not good. Yep. Uh, one was armed with a double-barrel shotgun and another with a thirty-eight caliber Smith & Wesson handgun. Uh, the man with the shotgun raised it in the air, fired two shots into the ceiling, and ordered that's the ski... That's so rude. I know, right? They just ruined the ceiling like that. Uh, <laughs> um but uh so he he fired two shots off and ordered the security guard to lay down on the ground and put his hands on his head the gunshots Which he did i assume he did uh the gunshots also brought the attention of the other two guards um and the armed men were able to surprise and overpower them um but like i assume okay, the security wanna... guards weren't carrying guns i assume they had yeah. batons and bells and that kind of stuff right and i was going to say too like okay this is just me being nitpicky 
but a shotgun is not a quiet weapon. So I don't know if their plan was to draw the attention of the other security guards and have them come in and that way they could surprise them, or that was just like a happy circumstance that they were able to surprise them and I assume continue with their heist. Yeah, I yeah, I don't I don't know either. It seems like they knew how many security guards were in the building. Mm, mm. Inside job? Hmm. Potentially, we'll see. Um so now helpless, the three guards were led to a nearby lecture hall where they were bound and gagged. Well, they are. Um, <laughs> so the thief armed with the handgun stood guard while the other two carefully looted the museum over the next hour and a half. Now, remember, wow, it's okay. it's the 70s. This isn't like a guy in the late 1800s. You know, there's no oil and gas lamps and and like natural light. He's not putting gold in his pants or anything like that. Um there there's electricity and modern burglar alarms and at least ringing bells and that kind of stuff like there are electrical alarms attached to doors and and like it is roughly modern um right so many of the more valuable exhibits are are alarmed um so how did this happen how did how did three men get into the museum without triggering any alarms how did they manage to loot the museum without triggering any of the alarms on any of the exhibits or any of the other doors or windows? Like, how how did this guard just round the corner and find three men? And so, how did they get away? Because I assume they got away, right? Uh, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. They, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I'm jumping the gun. They do definitely get away, though. You're 100% correct. Yeah, tell me more. Tell me more. So so let's just flash back to around midnight. Remember, they started at 1.30 a.m. It's, okay. it's midnight the same night, an hour and a half before the, the everything starts. Um, the, the following is what police believe happened, just based on the physical evidence they found around. Um, keep that in mind. We, like, we still don't know exactly what happened. But... They believe right. that the three men met on the west side of the museum between its west wall and a local cathedral. So okay. it's it's well hidden. It's away from the streetlights. Based on the markings left on a nearby tree on the exter- and on the exterior uh, wall of the museum, they believe that one of the men wore pick-equipped climbing boots, um, like people like ice climbers and utility workers wear to like climb telephone okay. poles and stuff. Right. And he climbed the tree and then climbed the building from the tree <laughs> and made it onto the roof. This um, was a lot more work than I would ever put into anything. So, like, I mean, good for him for being industrious, I guess. Well, and then he proceeded to anchor a rope and throw a rope down and the other two men climbed up, presumably. Oh, so they have to have that upper body strength. Yeah, so these are good climbers. These are these are well-prepared, well-equipped dudes. Um so remember how the building was undergoing renovations. They were then able to find a ladder. Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry. They didn't They didn't swing a rope down. The rope comes later. Um, he oh, was at, okay. He was sorry. actually able to find a ladder on the roof tall enough to just let the other men climb up. <laughs> like, just, okay, that seems like poor planning. But it seems continue. like poor planning, and it seems oddly suspicious that a ladder was just there, ready to be taken advantage of. The perfect height. Right. Um, they then entered the building through a skylight where they were able to anchor a rope. And, like, the skylight was, you know, from, from the very top of the building down through, down through like, an open showing space all the way to the main floor. All the way to the first floor. Um, so the skylight 
was being replaced, which means that it was temp- temporarily covered with weather wrap plastic, weather wrap, like, you know, just like a plastic sheet. Right, right, right. Um, because there was no window there. So the alarm was disabled because of this plastic that was over this window. And they happened to know that and, and know that that was a window that they could get through without setting off the alarm. Exactly. So these are either the luckiest dudes in the world, or they know something, right? Right, or it's really suspicious. Well, because, like, like, how do you just know that there's going to be a skylight that happens to be taken out, right? Exactly, exactly. It's too specific of... Too specific of a thing. Um, it's circumstantial. Yeah, it's something. Um, so, because they entered through this skylight, um, this case would forever be known as the Skylight Caper. Um, so okay. they, they entered through the skylight. That's how they got in the museum. So let's, so this is like the basis for all of those movies where it's like someone gets dropped in. Through. Basically. Yeah. Like mission impossible. Every, all of those. Yeah. <laughs> There's a million of them. Um, so let's flash back to th- back forward to 3am. Um, th- remember the robbers started around one thirty. Um, so they've gathered up the security guards at this point, correct? Th- they've gathered them up. They're tied up. Okay. They've collected a ton of stuff. They've collected a serious haul. And um, again, for unknown so can reasons. I ask you, like, yeah. Can I ask you a specific maybe question? Maybe you have the answer to this. Maybe you don't. So I guess I don't. Did this museum only have paintings, or did it have sculptures too? So like, what kind of stuff did they steal? Yeah. So they they stole. They this this is like a true museum. So they have jewelry. They have artifacts. They have sculptures. Okay, they have cool. everything. Yeah. Um. So. Real quick, for unknown reasons, they were able to defeat uh, a few exhibit alarms for some of the more valuable pieces, mm. like Indiana Jones style. Yeah, I'm imagining like a guy holding a sack and like swapping it for the idol and then still getting hit by the alarm or something. Um, right. So these guys made an alarm-free entrance robbery and had a plan for exit without any, like without giving any identifiers of themselves to the captive guards at mm. all. So based wow. on the, yep. So based on the equipment they left behind, they apparently originally had planned on moving the entire take up through the same skylight that they had come in through, uh, using a system of pulleys. They were going to rig pulleys. Oh, and okay. Pulling everything up through I can there. See that. Okay. Right. Um, but luckily for them, one of the museum guards had some keys on him to the museum <laughs> truck. Luckily, quote unquote. Luckily, it's actually kind of an ironic luck because. Um, they opted for this simpler approach of just like going out back to the truck, stealing the truck, loading everything on, and then you know, <laughs> right. prob- probably ditching the truck somewhere. But when they opened the side entrance that led to the truck, uh, an alarm sounded. Um, so they were forced to flee on foot, and they left behind about a half of the treasure that they had collected. Wow. Um, so they're carrying everything on their backs, presumably. Um <sighs> Now, I want to mention here, an alarm sounded, but nobody showed up around 4 a.m. Oh, my gosh. Really? I'll get to that in a minute. One oh, of, no, I, okay. I just wanted to point that out. Um, around 4 a.m., an hour after they had escaped, one of the guards managed to free himself and call in the theft to museum management and the police. Um, Bill Banty, who was the museum's head of public relations, who he actually used to be a reporter in Montreal, and Ruth Jackson, a museum curator, were the first to arrive on scene, um, and then the police followed them. In total, after they collected everything, the or after they had you know taken inventory of everything, 
everything. The thieves were able to make off with 18 small to medium-sized paintings, 18 of them. Um, That's a lot. Right, many taken straight out of smashed frames, um, some of them cut out of their frames. Oh, no. Yeah, um, 38 pieces uh, and, and 38 pieces of assorted jewelry, um, pottery, and other small valuables. The total value was in, in 1972 was estimated at around 2 million U.S. dollars. Oh, my God. That's even more today. Yeah, about $13 million in, in oh 2019 bucks. Yeah. Um, so not bad for three hours of work in the middle of the night yeah. and some like cardio. I have many follow-up questions, but I'm going to let you continue and see if they get answered. They might. Um, so Bill Banty, the the first guy to arrive on scene, the head of public relations guy, I love him. He held a press conference first thing the following morning. Um now again, he used to be a former journalist, so he's got some teeth in the he press. He knows how to play the game, yeah. Oh, he does. In the press conference, he mentioned that the th- that the thieves had shown quote quite discriminating taste, but they could do <laughs> with more historical art training. <laughs> um, oh my god, that's like the best clapback ever. I know. So they had left like, behind. You get robbed, and you have this kind of clapback. I love it. Right, so on exhibit at the museum, some of them on loan and some of them some of them owned by the museum were a Rembrandt, an El Greco, a Picasso, a Tintoretto, uh, and a couple of other super famous works that they could have stolen. And those never got stolen, right? They didn't get stolen. They could have stolen those wow. easily if they had known to look for them, though. Um, but did they purposely choose to not steal such a famous piece? Potentially, because famous pieces are highly identifiable. They're harder to sell. Yes. They're very, much, much harder to sell. So um, now around the same week and a weekend, there was a lot of civil unrest in the world like we were talking about before. The Olympics were actually being held the same same time. Um, and that was what? Where was the Olympics held that year? I have no idea, but it was in the news. <laughs> Okay, never um, mind. I'm sorry. I think it was in the Middle East, but I'm not certain. Um, was that the one where those Jewish yes. people got killed? Yes, where the Israeli oh, okay. team yeah, got kidnapped like and killed. Yeah, this is like a huge deal, y'all, if you yeah. haven't heard about this. This was like the one of the first large stories about the rise of Palestinian terrorism. Um and just a few, day, a few days earlier, locally even, Montreal had suffered its deadliest fire in history, which killed 37 people in a downtown nightclub. Oh, holy shit, in the 70s? Yeah. So this was... Yikes. Yeah, so this was like a big kind of, like, more important than art theft news week, weekend, month, year. Yeah, this year. was like, like a shitty global week. Right. So, um, obviously, these events, de- like, they deserve a much more prominent place in the news than in art theft. Um, but the fact that it was all happening at the same time in the age of primarily print media and some television media, but or some television news, but there's no, like, 24-hour news channels. Like, this is in the age... And there's where, not the internet. Right, there's not the internet. Like, this is in the age where TV ended at, like, 10 p.m. Like, TV right, just Right, and then stopped. you just had, like, a weird Stat- signal across your TV. Yeah, you had, like, a B or a static or something. Um, so this whole thing kind of pushed this caper to, like, a page seven story. Um, many believe that this, you know, in this day, like retrospectively that this aided in the thieves escape and and, you know in and in their you know in their staying anonymous as the notoriety of the stolen works wasn't nearly as high as it could have been right well and with any crime i would say the first 24 to 48 if you're being generous 72 hours are the prime critical time for catching whoever the culprit is Mm -hmm. regardless of what the you know crime might be 
So especially when you have people who are already showing some level of planning right yeah. now, if they plan well or not, I'm not going to speak to that right now, but they had some level of planning. So surely oh, yeah. they have an escape plan or like something, an idea what to do. They're not just like, Hey man, I'm just going to tell like everybody I know that I have all this stolen art in my apartment. Yeah. They're, they're not the Joker here. It's not like they're, you know, chasing the, what's the line? They're not about just chaos. They're not, trying to get attention. Right, they're because, not, not going to burn these all this art. They're they're in this for the money, right? Right, and like more than anything, the Joker is an attention whore. But like we can talk for about sure. that yeah. later if yeah. if y'all yeah. want. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So really, that was you know I understand why at the time it didn't get the same sort of attention as other you know like bigger global things. But, but it like definitely that helped really helped these crime these oh. criminals. Yeah. Oh yeah. Way like so much. Um. So from the guards description, two of the men were five foot six. Um, the third man, that's they pretty ne- exact. Yeah, um, they were like five and a half feet tall, about. Um, the third man, they never actually got a good enough look at. They never like saw him directly next to the other two. He was also oh, he stayed in the shadows. Yeah, or something like that. Um, but uh, they they knew that two of them spoke French and one of them spoke English. That was going to be my second question was yes. what language do they speak? Because yes. that would be a big indicator. You know, like I said a little bit ago, listeners, many, 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 many people in this part of Canada speak French as their native language. Right. Like so, and some of them don't even speak English. And there's a lot right. of like, there's a lot of, um, if you ever travel to Montreal... It's a beautiful city, but you're going to get basically looked down on by everybody who does. Like, if you've ever been to Paris and you think Parisians are snooty and French and snooty about their language, you've never been to Montreal. You've never See, been to I've Quebec. I've heard the opposite. I've heard the opposite that Montreal is better. Sorry, listeners, for the detour. So um, let's go to Montreal for research. Yeah, I'm in. Let's go on vacation. And we'll find out. Um, but yeah, like, I have friends who are from ottawa which is not in the same territory but it also has a high concentration of native french speakers and all of them spoke french natively that's the language that they learned at home that's the language they were taught in one of them told me that he only learned english because his babysitter primarily spoke english and she would make him watch disney movies oh that's such a good way to learn english Right. So, I mean, it, this is something that's hard for us to understand. I think if you're from the United States, if you're from a different country, it might be easier to understand. But yep. this is like, as far as police work goes, a really good indicator of who your suspects could be. If right. you have two of them who clearly natively speak French and you have one of them who speaks English. Right. Or at least narrows the suspect pool significantly based, oh, yeah, on, for sure. based yeah. on who can speak what. So, um so two of them spoke French. Two of them were five and a half feet tall. One of them is unknown. The other spoke. The right. other speaks English. Um, upon hearing this description, the police were immediately struck with how similar the case was to another art theft that occurred just a few days prior to a local wealthy um, business person's summer home. Um, they were about twenty miles outside of Montreal. The thieves used okay. a, a motorboat on a nearby. Wow, are you serious? Yeah, they used a motorboat on a nearby oh lake to get near the property, and then. Wait for it. Wait for it. They scaled a 600-foot cliff. What? 
Yeah, a 600-foot cliff, and they invaded the home and stole $50,000 worth of art and valuables. Um, okay, so wait. Okay, I'm sorry, y'all. I keep I, I keep derailing, but I have so many questions. So they were just, like, dead-ass carrying this art? Like, down. one of them carted it up the cliff? Th- d- no, no, no. They drove a motorboat up to the base of a cliff. Right presumably dropped anchor and then climbed 600 feet up a nearly sheer cliff face to a home like a luxury wealthy you know multi-million dollar home on a cl- on top of a cliff robbed it like like <gasps> like armed robbery okay, so they weren't okay so they went up there and they robbed it and they took what they got from there and brought it back down and then went back down the cliff face into their boat and made their getaway holy shit yes and all three men were described as average height had worn ski masks one spoke english and the other two french were were people in the house when it was robbed yes so they (gasps) they had that's old Yes. So the the three men, average height, same language profile, same entry and exit strategy, kind of like there's some climbing involved. Right. Um, right. It feels pretty similar. So um, I'm just going to start. Basically, this is that's what we know about the crime. Right. Right. And now I'm going to just start going through some of the more prominent theories that have come up. OK. So before you do that, and yes. if this comes up in a theory, yes. you let me know. Yes. Has any of that art ever been recovered or put up for sale? Oh, we'll get there. Okay, okay, never mind. You go. You go, yes, girl. Yes, Um. So, the first and, and statistically most likely theory, from kind of my tone, is that it was an inside job. Oh, yeah, of course. Like, that's, if you are not familiar with Occam's Razor, y'all, please get familiar with it. Because yep. the simplest answer is way more likely to be the answer than anything complicated. So yep. what is the simplest answer in this? Inside job. Yep. Now, um, you know, it, 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 it wasn't always the husband, but it was always the husband, right? Um, right. So or the boyfriend. Well, it's always, I, I mean, it's it's always, I, I mean, just, just even if you think about it statistically, not even like looking at it that way, art theft experts have said, like when speaking about this case, that it's usually an employer contractor that's the perpetrator. Oh, of course. Someone on the inside is just more likely to know possible entry and exit strategies, how to defeat security systems, when and how many guards they're going to be, the proficiency of those guards at guarding things. Like, right. is 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 Paul Blart going to be there, or is it going to be you know Jerry, the guy who cares about his ham sandwich more than the art? Right, like, right, like. The law of averages says that it's going to be someone close. So it's it's could be an inside job, but and that's the first thing that I thought of, and and the really like the first thing that crossed my mind when I was reading about it was, hey, they're undergoing renovations. It might have been a construction worker. That's how they might have known about the ladder on the roof and the window that was out. Right. Um, any of them likely would have known the specific skylight wasn't alarmed. Um, they would have gotten an idea of the active security on, prefer- on, on the premises and may, even, may have even had access to the museum, like, just during the day to pick and choose what they might have taken. Um, well, and also, I'm sorry, as I interrupt you again. No, it's okay. The thing to keep in mind about construction workers, too, is you might be like, 
you know, you may be thinking to yourself, how would they have access to all this information? But there is a lot of shit you can just overhear. Yeah, no, there's a lot of like passive information that you can just glean just oh, from listening sure. carefully. So yeah. if somebody was, you know, purposefully trying to get a job here for the purpose of robbing the place, or if you had listened and you had been like, man, it sounds like it'd be really easy to rob this place. Like... It's very easy to do those sorts of things. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that a lot of times people feel comfortable and safe and they get kind of loosey-goosey with what they say. And that can oh, yeah. lead to major theft. Oh, yeah. Um, but, but, but. But? I love buts. Um, Go ahead. Nice. Uh, as it turns out, the police thought of this too. Um, of course. So they, inter- they should. Right. So they interviewed every single contractor, construction worker, and every single employee of the museum multiple times. They launched surveillance campaigns on likely suspects. Mm-hmm. Um, but did they take it to the level of the Yara Gambriazio case? Not quite, but there were no cell phones around this time. The point is, no one had gone missing. No one was unavailable (laughs) for questioning. Nobody had engaged in any specific, like, like untoward behavior. Most of them had alibis. There was literally no likely suspects in the entirety of the pool of people. Because, like, obviously, if you're gonna, like, be part of a major heist of a, of an art museum, like, why would you go to work the next day? I mean, uh, unless to throw off the trail, like I would go to work the next day and be like, "Hurt it, hurt it, hurt." I, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where it's like, if you are going to steal that art and you're now suddenly like find yourself in a wealthy situation, skip town, go to Europe, like you're. But you also have to like sell it and acquire money. You do, but it's the '70s. Imagine how easy it is to drop off the grid without the internet. I mean, really. And also, it was much easier to travel internationally at the time. Yeah, yeah. No, they there's... did not question you nearly as much as they do now. Like God when no. I had God a layover no. in Amsterdam, when I was going to an archaeological dig in Italy, I was given like the third degree. Yeah. The guy was, I don't know if he was just like routine and used to asking, but like, you know, 19 year old me was pretty intimidated. Yeah. No, totally. And I they was do just that. going on a dig. But like back then, they probably just waved you through. Oh, totally. Totally. Like, absolutely. Um, so it was also possible that the thieves knew about this access point just from some careful planning and forethought. Like uh, watching, yeah. <laughs> yeah, watching. I mean, literally watching. About two weeks prior to the robbery, someone had reported two men sitting on the roof. Uh, of the museum on chairs like could get on the roof what the hell wearing sunglasses and smoking oh my god which is incredibly like French. shorts and like hawaiian t-shirts i'm They're just imagining like, like a beret and a cigarette and a oh, oh we for were sure. for sure um so well and also if well they were questioned admission. by they were questioned by the okay. museum employees and they were told they were just employees and they were taking a break um, oh my god and they just believed it yep but like also so the investigators they... looked into this they didn't find any chairs on the roof the okay. chairs were gone okay there was Fair. no evidence that this had happened i mean my second my second point would be that depending on the admissions policy of the museum it might have been free or close enough to free that you could have visited the museum several times very oh, yeah. affordably and seen but i, I just Probably. love that there were just two random dudes and they were like hey man what are you doing up here and they're like 
we're on our lunch break or we're yeah. on our smoke break and they were like okay cool and they're just and wearing laugh. sunglasses and smoking um so the the inside job theory is also rendered more unlikely by their escape plan um the, the museum the, the the thieves would have been easily able to disable the alarm before fleeing um from inside mm. the museum it was it was just like like a from what i understand it was just like bells that were like you could have thrown a leg over <laughs> literal bells i mean literally yeah um, okay uh like you know like a clanger like an alarm bell that was just like above the door um but they didn't disable it they ended up setting it off anyway and leaving half their take behind right so even more damning the alarm didn't actually sound anywhere outside of the museum remember how they signaled it at 3 a.m and it took until 4 a.m and one of the guards freeing himself for the police to come Right? right yeah the alarm didn't call the police the alarm only sounded inside the museum nobody outside the museum could even hear it yeah so they could have literally taken their time and collected everything but they didn't they heard the alarm they panicked they ran Um, so they wouldn't have known those specific details okay i see what you're saying right and and those would have been things that were easy for them to know even if they were just contractors like because they they like the construction workers had to disable several of the alarms in order to like replace the window for example okay gotcha um so I think it's safe to say, just from those few things, it might not have been an inside job, especially considering Fair. how thorough the police were. Furthermore, mm-hmm. half the paintings were actually published in advertisements for a traveling exhibition called The Masterpieces of Montreal. So it was well oh. known. Yeah. And it was no longer a traveling exhibition, but it was really well known that these were Montreal art pieces that were housed in the Museum of Fine Arts. And it seemed like they targeted that exhibition explicitly because it was like half of their total take was from that exhibition. Okay, so that makes sense then going back to our main boo. Yeah. That he was like, well, clearly they're not cultured because they would have stolen these other pieces, but those other pieces were not part of that traveling exhibit. Exactly. They knew that it's likely that they saw that just because they saw publications of that exhibit and they were like, hey, these are things at this museum. steal some shit. Right. Um, So maybe it's not an inside job. Another promising lead um, actually came through one of the more well-known strange cultural moieties of Montreal that we've been discussing, (laughs) the divide between English and French-speaking residents, or rather the rift between francophones and anglophones. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, those words kind of threw me off because I tend to read things like in the Greek, so I saw francophonies and anglophonies. No, you'd be wrong in this case. I I think that might be an option um no continue so so a nearby (laughs) school called the ecole de i don't know it's the the school of fine arts in montreal the okay if you send me it i'll say it send it to me right now okay it's the please don't be too hard on me i haven't officially studied french in six years it's the ecole de beaux-arts that's not how you say that École des Beaux-Arts de Montréal. Yeah, that. Montréal. Yeah. You want to be extra, extra. Yeah, exactly. Extra, extra. So it's it's the EBAM, um, the EBAM, the, the School of Fine Arts in Montreal. <laughs> they became the target of a particularly thorough police investigation. Right, because they're like, huh. Well, I haven't gotten there yet because it's just a school nearby, right? 
Right, but I mean, school. it's fine arts, right? Continue. True. Um, but the mostly French-speaking school had several students who frequented mm. the museum and who were often okay. asked to vacate the museum before its closing time so that the mostly English-speaking staff could take their afternoon tea. What? That's racist! I, I'm sorry, what? They could take their afternoon tea? They asked the French-speaking people to leave so that the English-speaking people could take their tea even though they're employees at an open museum and it, 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 it's open. Public. It's open okay, to the it's public. it's not technically racist, but, like, come on, that's pretty prejudiced. It's like, speechist, if you're having yeah. a museum that should be for generally use yes. for any person who lives in the area or is visiting... Yep. Anybody should be able to go. You can't have that kind of bullshit. Come yeah. on, y'all. Yeah. So apparently, this sparked enough resentment in the student body in the student body that it was actually like publicized. There was articles written about it and stuff in the area. <laughs> now, in response to that, some of the more um, frequently visiting students at the school actually uh, were surveilled twenty four hours a day. Uh, five of them specifically were were put under twenty four hour surveillance by the police during the investigation for several weeks. And let me uh, guess, they came up with bub kiss. Nothing, nothing. Nothing. They saw no Nada. evidence. Nothing. Um, Rien. In Nothing. 19, in 1984, I'm just going to skip ahead for a minute. In 1984, 12 years after the fact, Alain Lacossiere, an art theft specialist. Um, I love that. I want to have that designation. Right. Uh, he picked up the case in order to keep the case files alive. In 2010, he concluded, he published rather a statement concluding that the students were not involved because the perp was 30, uh, a 35 to 40 year old man, most likely. I have no idea how he concluded that. I tried to find That's the evidence. Of, I, well, I have no idea how he concluded that, though. Like, I assume. Right. Like, did you look at the enrollment? of students in that time period and none of them were that old also what about the instructors were the instructors all under that age period hmm. why did he come but why did he come to that age period what how did he find yes! like what i don't understand i mean I, we're just gonna I, I, call bullshit on that one i have no idea so i i want to real quickly i just wanted to throw that out there but I, real quickly now i want to take a quick detour into what i've learned about the museum and specifically um uh, about museum and fine art theft specifically while researching Sweet, tell us lay us some knowledge right so as it turns out most museum thefts are actually more like kidnapping than actual thefts um if someone steals hmm. your, so they like, just want to hold it ransom as opposed to keep it forever. Basically, yeah. If someone wants Sweet. to steal your wallet or TV, there's almost zero chance you're going to get it back. Um, it'll go to a fence. It'll uh, identifiers are going to be stripped from it. You know, if somebody steals your car, the first thing they do is take off the license plates and VIN number. Um, whatever it was stolen and whoever they're selling it to, if it's someone complicit or ignorant of the crime, whatever, it's it's going to be lost forever. They're they're going to find ways to make it, you know ambiguous that it was ever your property to begin with so that even if they're caught Fair. with it it can't be traced back to them with museum well, pieces also i'm go sorry ahead. no go can ahead. i interrupt you again yeah so if y'all like npr there's this really interesting piece by one of the reporters for npr and it's talking about how her father was like a concert violinist so like one of the best violinists in the world really great person and he had a violin from like 200 300 years ago and the important thing to note here is that violins are like of the period more highly sought after they say the sound quality is much better 
they're just in a different realm than what we're creating today. If somebody is a violinist or knows about this, please correct me if I'm wrong. But anyway, her father was playing in an orchestra, essentially. And he had this violin because basically there are these violins from a long time ago that just get kind of passed on from great violinist to great violinist, right? Did it find? Did he steal it? Was it a stolen no! violin? No! No, 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 no. So basically it's like somebody owns it and they're like a patron of the arts and they give it to people they deem worthy. Right. And apparently he had played a performance and after it, the violin was just gone. Oh my God. And they didn't know what happened to it. They didn't know what was going on. You know, they tried to search into it and they just never found it. That's tragic. Until. Oh God. Until the person who stole it died at like 80 or 90 and their grandkids went up into their attic and they had just been sitting in the attic for 80 or 90 years oh tragic right and so that's crazy that's the other thing to talk about what i'm trying to tie in this into with art is that depending on the purpose of the theft or how kind of like lawn of a game they're playing or how careful they are it might just be sitting in somebody's attic, in somebody's storage unit, in somebody's basement. Oh, yeah. no, and, and it, You you just don't know. It's not necessarily like, I have acquired the thing. Well, I will I, sell the thing the definitely. next day. Well, and I'll, I'll get there because I've got some info on, on the art that was actually stolen. <laughs> so. I'm so excited. Um, so, so real quickly, though. So if somebody steals your stuff, they try to de-identify it, right? They try to make it as right. ambiguous as possible, as, as unmarked as possible, and sell it to either somebody complicit in the crime or someone ignorant of that crime so that they can make their money and your goods are just gone. Right. With museum pieces, though, their value is derived specifically because they are identifiable, right? Correct. The fact, Absolutely. the fact that you can identify this painting as being by Da Vinci or Picasso or someone means that it is inherently more valuable than one that just looks a lot like it, right? Right, and so there are like specific it, certification processes. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So find like this is certified. Continue. Definitely. So like there there are ways to identify exactly like who painted what and when and how and there's there's people who will make careers out of that. So when someone's willing to purchase or finding someone who's willing to purchase stolen items is really 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 hard especially after a high profile uh-huh. heist like this one. Typically black markets are rife with undercover investigators, other thieves and like these days if you try to get away with that, you're going to have white hats on the lookout for crime, organizations like Crime Stoppers offering rewards. Um Right. Like un- many many undercover organizations that are just out there trying to find you trying to catch you exactly and it's really really difficult to stay anonymous and sell a stolen high profile good without getting caught especially pre-internet because you have to do it in person you can't just post shit on the internet yeah not like this right i have a side story but we'll put it at the end so if anybody wants to listen listen until the end yes um so when something is stolen from a museum, as I mentioned earlier, it's usually ransomed back to the museum for its sale value under the threat that it's going to be destroyed if the ransom isn't paid. For historically important pieces, you can make the argument that a huge sum is worth the price just for the historical significance of the piece, even like even well above and beyond its sale price. So the Mona Lisa, here's my side story. The Mona Lisa is actually a really good example of this. The Mona Lisa is a beautiful piece of art that is incredibly small and boring. Um, If you look, if you're at the Louvre, 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 you can't do it. I can't. Um, 
the Mona Lisa is so boring compared to it's the incredible. So Everybody thinks it's huge, but it's really tiny. So if you're oh, yeah. there and you're like trying to look at it, you have to like squint, fight your way to see it. Well, and like it's it's just so boring relative to the pieces that fill the walls of the Louvre around it. Right. If also, you're standing, she doesn't have any eyebrows anymore? No, she doesn't. If they you're, it, away. they did. So if you're standing and looking at the Mona Lisa and you turn completely around to take a stereotypical selfie with it along with the sea of people doing exactly the same, you'll see, if you just move your phone a little bit, you will see directly in front of you a painting called The The Wedding at Cana by Paolo Veronese. Okay. Veronese? Veronese. It is a mammothly detailed... If you said it to me, I would try to pronounce it for you. That's okay. It's a mammothly detailed, amazing piece of art. It is 22 feet, 3 inches tall by 32 feet wide. That's or more than a person. It's about seven by ten meters. Meters. Wow. It is huge. It is it is three people tall. Four, five people tall, if you're really short people. It's enormous <laughs> and it's beautiful. And it deserves so much more recognition than the Mona Lisa, but it never gets it, except from people like me who complain about the Mona Lisa and the wedding at Cana that's a that's across from it, right? To be fair, the Mona Lisa has some really inter- interesting characteristics. I don't want to like you know piss off da vinci fans but um like her smile can change depending on where you focus and where you're looking at her eyes or her mouth and where you're looking at the painting from it's actually a really cool technical piece of art right well and art is relative right it is like we're not trying to i have the beholder but like art is relative but what isn't relative is that you can't even get close to the mona lisa to see the intricacies of this because of its fame and the crowd surrounding it and you can't even get closer than like six feet because of louvre security because of the incredible louvre security because of the incredible crowd surrounding it which makes it pointless because it is only two feet by six or two feet six inches by one foot nine inches it is it is tiny compared to everything around it point is the mona lisa's fame is not derived from the fact that it is cool but rather from the fact that it was stolen from the louvre in 1911 it was returned to the louvre two years later and at that point the tale and investigation of its theft had taken the world by storm it was famous because it was publicized and its theft was a good story which made it more valuable up until then it was just a very pretty technical piece of artwork that was only known by da vinci fans and was really not known at all outside of the art going world these days it's literally the most famous piece of art in the world and not because a lot of people know about it, but because it was stolen and its story was Fair. a good one. And that legacy lives on. So let's get back to our case. Was there a ransom request? Yes. Yes. Twice. Oh. Um, so less than a week after the robbery, the museum director received a call from one of the apparent thieves. He described the voice as gravelly with a European accent. <laughs> That's um, so general. With, that doesn't help at all. With no specific nationality. He was given directions to a phone booth at a nearby university where he found one of the stolen jewelry pieces. Okay. So. Oh, okay. So this guy's got creds. Um, shortly after. He's like, yeah. I take it back. Right, exactly. So short after, shortly after a manila envelope um, uh, with uh, the Port of Montreal logo which I don't think is relevant at all, um, arrived at the museum with pictures of all of the stolen paintings lined up. Um, Mm. The thieves would henceforth be named uh, the Port of Montreal by the museum because of the the stamp on the envelope, which is weird. But anyway, the envelope also contained a note ransoming all of the works for $500,000. That's not much. 
It's about three million in today's bucks, but you know, considering they they stole two million in those days, it, you know, I think the museum would get a good deal if they will pay it, but they're not going to. <laughs> right, like man, we're getting a good deal. Right, Might so we'll buy those back, right? Exactly. So, um, David Giles Carter, the museum director, asked for more proof that this was in fact the people in possession of all of the stolen pieces and that they were still intact. In response, uh, they told museum security to go to Montreal Central Station and open a specific locker wherein they found a Brugel painting called The Landscape with Buildings and Wagon. <laughs> um, <laughs> so specific. Right. So the Brugel um, <laughs> was one of the paintings that was stolen, um, and uh, it has been returned. Um, now now that they have a phone dialogue with these boys, they start negotiating. They... Um, the amount requested by the ransom the by the ransomers was eventually halved to two hundred and fifty thousand, so they're getting an even better deal if they take it up. Um, and they be they even begun because they couldn't reach a consensus. They started to begin discussing ransoms of individual works. Um, oh my god! Yeah, so about a month goes How by. I know, and about a month goes by. Um, and the police working with uh, with the museum director, Carter, uh, set up a sting, and they plan to meet and exchange $5,000 for one of the paintings. Okay. I just want to take a moment here to make a point that, remember in our previous heist example, like, right away, this person just, like, fucking cut up the art. Yeah. Right? And right so away. these people are returning as evidence whole pieces undamaged pieces of art they they might just be like art buffs right they might be fans of art right, right. so they're not i mean they're not people who are wholly unfamiliar with art or who no. don't have any appreciation at all because it's not like oh yeah you had this jewelry piece and we stole it like here's there's, a and b from it so there's actually a reason why that specific piece of by that specific painting that brugel might have been returned and i'll Ooh. get i'll get to tell it in me. a little bit tell me okay I'll, I'll get to it in a little bit um so and anyway anyway um so they they're gonna do this thing they're gonna exchange five grand for one of the paintings right so one right, of the, hope that they catch the baddies right so one of the detectives posed as an insurance adjuster and planned to apprehend the thieves <laughs> um or their liaison if you know they're the thieves okay. are sending someone else i'm sorry for laughing it's just silly it's very silly um the meeting place itself was an open field near one of the city's newly developed suburbs. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who you're rooting for in this situation, a local police cruiser just happened to drive by the meeting place on a normal patrol minutes before the meeting, um, which investigators believe caused the thieves to think they were being set up, which they were, and flee. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they were like, oh shit, and they, then they ran away, and it was like, god damn it. They never showed me. <laughs> yep. Now the thieves called the museum later that day and complained that they were being set up, even though they were, but they had no evidence to suggest that they were. Right. They're like, why are you lying? Why are you lying? So they were right, just not for the right reasons. Um, right. So Alain Lacassire, the art theft expert um, who gets the age just nonchalantly of the thieves, um, believed that it was all a big smokescreen and that they never had planned to show up. He was saying that they were engaging in ransom negotiations just to keep the investigators focused while they you know explored other channels to sell smuggle or otherwise dispose of the rest of the art cash fair 
So, you know, that's it's a valid theory, too. Almost a year later, in 1973, in May, in May, the museum uh, finally finished its renovations. Um, I like how they just kept going with the renovations during this. They're like, fuck st- it, we're going forward. Can't stop. Um, so shortly after um, they finished the renovations, the a board member received a phone call, a museum board member, received a phone call saying that they would give the location of all of the stolen artwork if they gave him... 10 or if they gave the color 10 grand so okay let me just say that like these thieves are out for a bargain so here's the thing i'm, <laughs> I'm gonna get to it in a minute so an, an insurance okay. adjuster andre de uh was involved in the discussion uh after after you know this offer was made and made it clear right. that the insurance company would pay for information leading to the stolen art but would not pay for the art directly and there's like insurance reasons around oh, this that i man. won't go into okay. yeah so meaning the insurance company would not pay the ten thousand dollars even if it led to the art i'm a little oh, fuzzy okay. i know it's there are reasons for it that i can discuss later but um the point is the the adjuster andre is refusing to pay ten thousand dollars the museum <laughs> talked to andre and and discussed it with themselves and they agreed that the museum would pay the ten thousand dollars directly from their budget but only and they if, just have ten thousand to give okay i think they're a big museum but only if andre the insurance adjuster would be the one to personally make the exchange <laughs> so none of the people at the museum had the balls to do it so they're like i don't want to do it you don't want to do it she don't want to do it like let's make andre do it and andre's like i don't get paid enough for this right well and andre was like the one who was like i'm not paying ten thousand and they're like well if you're not going to pay then you at least have to take our money and do it um (laughs) so he agreed Um, he was instructed by the ransomer to go to a phone booth in downtown Montreal where he would receive a phone call with further instructions. He went, followed discreetly by the police. The instructions sent him across town. Once he reached that phone booth, he got a call at the booth, right? Like you do, Batman right. style. The instructions sent him across down to another phone booth where he went, and then another phone booth, and then uh, a fourth phone booth. And he was like, I'm sick of this! Oh, just wait. And then finally, the caller informed Andre that he had picked up a police escort and they saw it and that he would go. He would have to go back to his office and await further instructions and also get the police to stop following him. <laughs> oh, my God. This is like this is like a great episode of Punk. Yeah. So so around midnight, Andre went back to his office and the police were oh, called off. Um, Andre was again instructed to go to a phone booth. He received another phone call and was instructed to go to another phone booth and then to another and then to another and then to another and in total he get he visited 11 phone booths after he went to his office 11 oh my god that's um, too many that's 11 too many and then finally at 4 a.m he was told to leave the money in a sign in a vacant lot in downtown montreal and return to the first phone booth of the night he had visited and there he would receive the location of the cache of stolen artwork oh my god so and he did uh, he did that. He went and he left the money in the lot and he went to the first phone booth and he waited. Um, when he got to the phone booth, he quickly contacted police and and tuned them into what he'd been up to all night and they waited right, with him. Right, he's like, Yep. So he waited at that phone booth and he waited and he waited. And he got nothing for it. No, he got a phone call four hours later. Um, still inside of the phone booth, Andre uh, got this call telling him that the paintings and the other art were in a specific motel room north of Montreal. Um, but was that true, though? 
Well, police immediately uh, raided the whole motel, scoured it up and down, uh, searched every room and every nook and cranny of the hotel, and found no sign of the artwork or the thieves or that there had ever been artwork there. In fact, there was no indication that this call was in any way connected to the heist, and the $10,000 was never recovered. Oh my god. So this was just a troll. Probably, yeah. This was probably just a guy. Just a this dude. This was a 1970s troll, y'all. Yes, yes. Um, Back when you had to work a little bit harder to draw. Right. Um, so the following decades, uh, the investigation petered out after that. That was basically their well, last yeah. big, last big like shebang. Um, eventually, the details of the ransom were, were made uh, public in the mid 80s. They kept that all under wraps okay. through through their, you know, through the decade, basically. Um the works were carefully documented and circulated uh, to the world art community in the hopes that no showroom, exhibition, museum, or mm-hmm. collector would ever purchase or show any of the stolen artworks without recognizing them. They really wanted like this publicized heavily. The recovered painting, right. the recovered painting that that uh, Bugel, Bugel was kept in storage for a while and was reframed and re-exhibited. So this is the one piece of art that they've recovered so far, right? Aside from the small the piece one, of room. The and one. piece. The and piece, the Brugel, the landscape. Unfortunately, unfortunately, after it went back and was showed, art researchers, art researchers were uh, able to determine that the piece was actually not a Brugel, but was a far less valuable uh, work of one of the artist's assistants, significantly reducing its value. Okay. Can I, can I, I'm sorry, can I interject here to just lay some knowledge on y'all? The, the, so real quickly, the reason uh, for this, the reason that they uh, thought this was because um, of some discrepancy in in the paint, um, like, like in the actual chemical composition of the paint. But there's also the theory that the thieves were also able to recognize this um, because they were classically trained in art and were Fair. looking at all the pieces and that's why this was the one that they returned because okay. it was significantly less valuable so background knowledge you can just skip ahead like 15 seconds if this is not your thing but famous painters of that period and even earlier would often have almost like a warehouse of people so it'd be like okay here's this piece that i've made yep. now make copies of it yep and so their interns, I guess, you know, the people who are apprenticing under them would make a copy of it. This is literally so, like old school postering of correct. famous artwork. You're right, because yeah. it's like, you know, okay, so Mr. Smith wants a piece of my art, but they can't afford an original. Like, here they go. They can have this. And it yeah, would help shitty the person one from my who, assistant, yeah. Right, so it would help the person who is apprenticing to get that experience, and they would be able to, you know, build up their experience and then do work of their own. So this has come up with several other, I guess, like, famous pieces, quote-unquote, where someone's like, oh my god, this is from this artist, and then it's proven that it was just totally a copy. Right. <laughs> so that was very common back then. I mean, realize that, you know, like you said, they couldn't just, like, plop their art print into a scanner and scan right. it and print out right. some posters but this was how they did it so, so yeah actually, i mean it's very interesting to me it's very funny that you're bringing that up because um eventually here's a small other detour eventually the museum I mean, that's really embarrassing for whoever thought it was original and it was not yeah well 
Eventually, the museum's several insurers finally paid out the $2 million um, for the claim on all of the lost works. The museum used the money to purchase a specific painting by Sir Peter Paul Rubens called The Leopards. Um, the museum uh, displayed this painting uh, and marketed the work as the largest Rubens exhibited in Canada. Apparently, it was a relatively wow. large piece of artwork. Uh, it was later found, though, that this painting, too, was the work of one of the painter's assistants <laughs> because the red paint used in the leopards, I don't know, in, in the blood on the paint, like in, you know, some blood in mm-hmm. the art or something, wasn't mixed until four years after Ruben's death. Oh, okay. So, okay. Another so, side wait, note. Wait, 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 wait. Y'all... Wait, no! wait. The Rubens, so I just want to say this, that, that Rubens painting, the leopards would go on to be a very famous case study in falsely attributed paintings. Okay, cool, cool. So skip ahead 15 seconds again if this is not your jam. But this is like, this is my jam, so Don't I apologize. Skip. Don't skip. So that is something really interesting about artwork is that we're able to do things like carbon dating and checking the materials used because a lot of times it is very easy for someone to recreate a piece of art, right? Like it's mm-hmm. easier to recreate a piece of art and like copy it than it is to make an original. So there are people whose like profession, I guess, is to make copies of yep. art. Very and much so, so you can test the paint used specifically in most cases and tell what time frame it was made in. So obviously if you have a painting and you're not sure if it's an original or not, you can check the paint and do testing on it and be like, okay, well, this type of paint was only manufactured in the past 50 to 100 years, so it's not an original. There's so, like there's a whole field of study around that. They can even do things oh, like yeah. x-raying painting and looking oh, at brush yeah. stroke profiles and all sorts of stuff. There are careers and also, built like, carbon this. dating and shit. Oh, like, yeah, yeah it's it just like really intense. So anyway, basically, it is much easier now than it was in the past to determine if a piece of art is a fake or if it's real because obviously you're trying to say this piece of art was made in the 15th century and that type of painting material was not manufactured because it's like a manufactured thing that humans have to make until like the 18th century okay it's fake right so anyway that's me nerding out yeah really exciting right um so in 1992 so yeah no that's so anyway Point being, this poor museum, they got everything stolen, and then they finally got their insurance paid out after the case was officially considered lost, um, and they used the $2 million... <laughs> they just wrote it off on their taxes. Well, like, they, I mean, they got the $2 million insurance claim, but the $2 million right. they then spent and, like, bought one single large piece of really famous art with it that turned out to be fake, so... Which is hilarious and, like... Tragic. I don't know it's true ironic or Alanis Morissette ironic but like listeners let me know it's sad so in 1992 on the 20th anniversary of the theft Radio Canada Canada reported uh, that the paintings would now be valued around 20 million dollars if they were ever recovered 21 dollars 21 million 20 million i'm sorry 20 million dollars i'm sorry Um, y'all i'm hard of hearing but that was going to be extra hilarious if they were like we're done with these paintings they're only 21 dollars right um so elaine lacossiere the art theft expert again pops his head up he continued to pursue the case into the 90s uh, and even personally offered 
an additional one million dollars for information leading to the stolen artwork. And it, like had fucking a million dollars. This dude, uh, will, uh, I'll link. Can this, I be this dude? I want to be him. Maybe I'll link this dude's bio in the sources. He's kind of an extra person. Um, in 1998. So if you are, is he dead? No. So if you are this man, reach out, and you are somehow listening to this podcast, I want to talk to you. Please, like, reach out. We want to interview you. Yeah, that's not going to happen though. In 1998, he interviewed a man that he would only identify as Smith. Uh, Smith was a student uh, at the French-speaking art school that we talked about. Mm. Um, That that school of fine arts at the time of the theft, which is why the which is where the police originally, you know, began tailing and 24 hours surveilling those students. Um, right. But Smith was not one of the five students that the police mm, okay. surveilled around the clock. He apparently knew a significant amount about the theft, though. Even some details that hadn't been published. Um, he knew about the type of rope that the huh. robbers had used. And, that seems suspicious. And he knew about the students, his his fellow students that were kept under surveillance. He knew about some, speci- hmm. some specifics about the guards that had been restrained. <laughs> He knew some stuff. Um, Lacosire. And he proffered this for free. He was yes. just like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lacosire. You should say. Uh, yeah, Lacosire considered his statements highly suspicious. Quote. Um, <laughs> Love it. This is made even more suspicious considering that the details about the rope used were never explicitly publicized. They That's were, super suspicious, y'all. They were actually kept from the public in order to cooperate. Yeah, in order to corroborate confessions from potential Mm -hmm. suspects if they were ever caught. Smith had apparently completed his five years at the Fine Arts School and had subsequently, after graduating, purchased a $250,000 woodworking business and a house in the area around Montreal. That's really suspicious. Can I just say, like, how do you just graduate and you have that kind of money? I'm suspicious of him. Lacassure had uh, no clue how he came across this money, even after looking into his background. Now, in 2007... That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Now, in 2007, uh, Lacassure was filming a French-Canadian special called The Columbo of Art that was about himself as, like... (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, that was about... I'm sorry, that's just so... Oh, my God. It's it's very cringy. Um, Right. (laughs) It was about all of his exploits as an art theft detective and how he was the best in the world at this and all this kind of stuff. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm trying to be serious, but this is ridiculous. It this is. This is ridiculous. Well, on camera, he approached Smith at his home and offered him a million-dollar check, like, right then and there, to confess to the theft. And Smith instead laughed and invited the camera crew in to see that he had none of the stolen art in his home. Okay, but also, like... Is there a statute of limitations in Canada on that kind no, of thing? No, like, probably not. Probably not on grand larceny like that. Probably not. Right. So, like, if I were the person, why am I going to be like, yeah, I did it. And then, like, I go to jail for the rest of my life. Right. Now, I want to say Lacassiere is an ex-detective. He is actually a decorated officer and it was famous and is famous for his skills solving, like, these unsolvable art crimes and all of his, like... Like how much he he knows about art. He he was legitimately an expert in art theft. There's no question about that. But all of this Smith stuff came out at the time he was filming a TV show called The Columbo of Art. So all I'm saying is major grains of salt where that comes from. I'm not saying that the Smith guy is real. I'm not saying that 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 he isn't real. All I'm saying is that no arrest was ever made. Now in any case, right. 
Smith's identity was never actually published. Oh, that's dumb. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we don't know who Smith is, and he was never arrested or anything like that. So. Right, and also, like, I just want to make it clear that we're not saying that this is not a possibility because based on what we know yes correct yes we cannot confirm that however it's suspicious as an individual says that's suspicious yeah this is this is suspicious all i'm saying is big grains of salt like huge grains of 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 salt here whenever anyone has a camera pointed at someone always 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 grains of salt many many grains (laughs) of salt um in any case, um, to this day, the case of the 1972 robbery of the Montreal Museum of Fine Art is still considered open. The landscape painting... Uh, it's the br- still considered open? like It's still considered open. And wow, the, okay. And, and the landscape painting, the Brugel that was found to be not a Brugel, uh, found in, in Montreal Central Station, is still the only painting ever recovered from the Skylight Caper. All of the other works okay. and all of the other jewelry and all of the other pieces are still missing. So here's my follow-up question. This museum is still currently open, correct? Absolutely. You can go there. Sweet. Okay. So, fans, if you want, let us know if we should go to this museum and do some a, reconnaissance. I bet it's a dope museum. I would I would love to see the skylight that they came in. I would. Yeah, for sure. And we can be like, this is a skylight and show you a picture. Right, and I'm sure we'd get really suspicious looks from the guards and stuff there, but that's fine. But I mean, obviously not that suspicious. Right. So what was your? We would just be like, "We're work here. We're on our break." Right. So what was your story? Okay, so for those of you who have listened this far, thank you. I am the queen of tangents, so I apologize in advance, but I had to share this great story with you. So just hearing about counterfeit pieces of art. And them trying to be sold and everything like that reminded me of this great story. Is this one you want to make an episode out of? No. It's okay. not enough to be an episode. I'm sorry, y'all. I can try to dig up enough, dig up enough information to make an episode if you tell us you want that. Do but we, I don't wait, think wait, 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 wait. Before you, before you say it, do you want to make it a mini-sode? I don't think there's enough. You don't? Even for a mini-sode? Even for like a 15-minute mini-sode? Uh, okay, how about I give you the basics, and then if you're interested, y'all tell me if you want a mini-episode. I'm interested. Let's do a mini-sode. I don't know if there's enough! It's fine. I don't, wanna, I don't want this to be all everybody ever hears. Okay, so I'll just give you a preview. How about that? Yes, that's perfect. And you tell us if you want this to be a mini-sode I'm a, or I'm not. I'm a fan, and I it. want it to be a mini-sode. Okay. You can't just make a bunch of fake Gmail accounts. I can. To email and say, oh, no. Okay. So, anyway. So, basically, there has been a case of a piece of art being bought and as it turns out not only was that art counterfeit but so was the money paid oh i know about this case well then is there even any point in me doing it yes we should definitely do a minisode on that that's a good one okay so we're gonna do a minisode on this if you already know about it let us know. Tell us what your favorite part of this case is. But I freaking love it. I just, it's the greatest case of comeuppance 
that I yes come across. Yes, I know. So, I yes, I want to hear more details about it because I only know the basics. Yes, I would love. Okay, that. so we will get into that. If you've listened this far, thank you. You're great. If you have suggestions for specific cases we should cover, I'm just going to throw this out there. Yeah. Please give that to us because yeah. I have several episodes kind of like in the works that I want to do, but they're taking a lot more research and a lot more effort because I do want to try to give the most effort I can into an episode and read the most source material as I can yes. to tell you about it. So if you have suggestions for cases that you want to hear about, you want to hear our spin about that you have found interesting, let us please know. let us know. And we will research the heck out of it because yeah. not going to lie, that's one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast yeah. is going down the rabbit hole and reading all about the case. Ditto. It always like it always takes longer than you think because like you I see know. you see a name in a Wikipedia article and you Google that name and you're like, oh, my God, this deserves a whole story in and of itself. Tangent time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, right. absolutely. So, so if you have suggestions, you have ideas, you have comments, you have concerns. I mean, I'm less excited about the concerns, but if you have concerns, go <laughs> ahead and email us on our website. Mysterypodcast.com. We'll yep. Yeah. We'll be more than happy to respond to you. Um, if you have thoughts on this specific episode, please let us know as well. We are more than happy to listen to your theories, your thoughts. Absolutely. Whatever you might have, and we'll talk about them in the next episode. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. Mel, I'll talk to you next time. Au revoir.